Welcome to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Klaus Obermeier. Klaus is a ski industry hall of famer. His early innovations in ski clothing helped make the industry what it is today. He was born in Germany in 1919 and came to the United States just after World War II looking for a job. I started by asking him to describe Germany before the war. I should start in 1933 when Hitler got into power in Germany. One of the main reasons why he made it in was that there was a total disastrous economy. Uh, Germany was pushed into total bankruptcy, into uh, total inflation. Uh, It was just unbelievable. So the country was divided between communists on the left and Nazis on the right and very little in the middle. And, And so Hitler had built uh, two armies, political armies, SR and SS. Uh, and people said, well, it can't get any worse. So if we vote him in, we can always vote him out again. And 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 they couldn't. He, he got voted in. They, they set the Reichstag, which would be like the White House here, on fire. The Nazis did. And blamed it on the communists. And that, it was kind of a 9-11 kind of a feeling then, and everybody voted, or most of them voted for Nazism. So they thought, well, that, 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 that's terrible what these communists did. But they didn't do it. So it, it was, a, what do you call it today? You call it a spin? <laughs> yeah, that's quite <laughs> so, a spin. Yeah, yeah, that was quite a spin. That, that, that's how they started so then the autobahns were built, even though nobody had a car, <laughs> but at least it put people to work. And then a huge propaganda machine was set uh, in motion to brainwash, brainwash, brainwash. Radio was just invented. Each town bought a little folks radio, like a Volkswagen. There was a folks radio. Uh, and and in the evening after work, everybody sat around that radio and listened, and they and, and they were were brainwashed. They, they, and they never had anything like this. So there was a voice coming out of this box and told them things, and they believed it. I think Germany, the German population got brainwashed to were at least I would say seventy five percent were Nazis by the time the war started. So that was uh, just a very sad thing. And then as the war got worse and worse and the cities got bombed and people got killed and maimed, uh, there were less and less Nazis in their hearts. But to the outside, just to protect themselves so they didn't get sent into into, uh, a concentration camp, they, they, they kind of talked for it. It, it just to protect their family and themselves. but So there was a denazification taking place that by the end of the war, there were maybe 10% Nazis left. So it's an interesting, interesting kind of development that happened there. But, the, you know, the wonderful thing was the, the, uh, the Americans were embraced as uh, the people that freed 
Germany from Nazism. And there was not one single American soldier killed after the war was over. Not like Iraq. So it, it, it was just totally different. And, and most people were just glad that they're in the American zone of occupation instead of the Russian zone of occupation, which was so much worse. Or the English, which was poorer, or the French, which was poorer. <laughs> what was the mood of, of uh, Germany in 1947 when you left? The mood was one of great relief that the war was over. Because uh, uh, by that time, uh, almost total denazification had happened because everybody, even the dumbest guys, saw that it was stupid to have made a war. Uh, 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 that's always stupid. That is when you no longer are intelligent enough to talk things out and, and uh, come to uh, compromises and arranges. Then you start a war, and that's the most stupid and dumb thing that anyone can do. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Klaus Obermeier. Here Klaus talks about why he left Germany. What led you to leave Germany? Well, there are many reasons. Uh one of them was that I like to like people. And after the Nazis took off their uniforms, uh, you never knew when you met somebody whether he may not have been also one of those terrible criminals uh, that ruined our country. And uh, so, so, so it kind of felt un. Easy. So that was one reason why I wanted to get out. Another was I met a guy. Uh, I, uh, I, I uh, had a ski school up on the Nebelhorn in Oberstdorf for American officers. And I met a really nice guy, and he said, you should come to America. We have good skiing in the northeastern part of America. And so I said, I'll, I'll see that uh, my dad uh, will sponsor you. And so, so, so that's what happened. He, he, he's, his dad sponsored me, and I thought, well, I'll go and see if I don't like it. I always can come back. And I took with me $10. That was the legal limit of foreign currency that one could take out of Germany in 1947. And I spent some of it for haircuts in Bremen because <laughs> there was a barber set up uh, uh, he said, you can go to America with hair that long. <laughs> and, then, and I had just had a haircut in in my hometown of Oberstaufen, you know, because he said, you go to America, you need short hair. <laughs> and, and so anyhow, so, so, and then I got on the boat, and the, the barber on the boat said, you cannot go to New York like this. you got to have a haircut. So I spent most of that $10 on haircuts. And when I, and when I got to New York, the, 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 my friend picked me up, and he said, well, the first thing we have to do is go to barbershop. You cannot have hair like this. So, <laughs> so it still wasn't so short it enough. It was still not short enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there went the $10 for haircuts. <laughs> was it was it hard to leave Germany? Yeah, you know what? I I always kind of felt a citizen of this planet. Uh 
rather than of a special country so much. And, and, and uh, it was very curious. I really wanted to see the Indians because I had read about the Indians a lot. And um, uh, they, they were fascinating me because of their uh, peaceful, mainly peaceful existence with nature. Uh, they stepped on the planet very lightly it, and, and had a wonderful, wonderful philosophy, at least most of them. And so I wanted to meet them and see, see how they live and how they are and what they say, you know. <laughs> did, did you get a chance to meet them? Oh, yes. I, I got to meet them. The first ones, that was in 1947. We were sent down from the ski school. They wanted to have three Bavarians uh, to, 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 to teach them how to ski on their ski area of Stoner, Colorado. And uh, they, they made a big reception for us, but there was only one Bavarian, that was me. And so the other guy uh, kind of acted like a Bavarian, uh, which is easy to do. <laughs> so so, so we, we kind of showed them how to do royal turns and all kinds of stuff. They had a rope toe there, you know. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Klaus Obermeier, ski industry icon. Klaus came to the United States just after World War II looking for a job in aeronautics. He discovered what many immigrants before and after him have discovered. I came, when I came to New York in '47, uh, that was pretty pretty tough because I, 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 I found work in the Paragon Paint and Varnish Company in Long Island and, uh, that, that, for $28 a week, and my rent was $10 a month, so it, it was tough to save up enough money to get out of New York. And, but I did. By the time fall came, I had saved up enough money to uh, buy a ticket to Sun Valley, Idaho. Uh, I heard a lot about it, and I'd seen the film Sun Valley Serenade with Sonia Henney. So that was great. That was a wonderful thing was to leave the city of New York. When you're poor, that's not the place you want to be. When you arrived in Sun Valley, what did, what did you find? I found these people all so friendly. In the big city, they're also kind of suspicious of each other. And, uh, and in the West, they were so open and so, so friendly. And there was still the old pioneer spirit somehow that, where you were glad when somebody else came to maybe fight the Indians or, you know, or help build a house or do something. So, so that was a, a whole new experience. And so the bus driver, as I left the bus in, in Sun Valley, he said, well, if you need any help, let me know. Maybe I can help you. <laughs> you know, you're new here. I've never seen you. Yeah, I mean, just so nice. And uh, so the next day, I already found a job in Sun Valley. But the, the man, a friend of mine from St. Anton in Austria, Friedel Pfeiffer, uh, who was the director of the ski school in Sun Valley, I, I asked him to challenge him, said, where do 
I find Friedel Pfeiffer. said, oh, in Aspen. Oh, I said, thank you. I went across the street to the Aspen Chalet, and I said, I'd like to talk to Friedel Pfeiffer. He said, oh, no, he's in Aspen. I said, well, isn't this the Aspen Chalet? He said, no, Aspen is a new resort they're doing in Colorado. That's 800 miles from here. <laughs> so, so then I... I got, I was lucky I got on the phone with Ado Lang. He was with 20th Century Fox, and he was the next one to run the uh, ski school. And I knew him from racing also in, in Europe. And so he said, oh, you stay here. I'll, I'll, you can join the ski, the, the ski school in Sun Valley. And I came out of the little payphone booth, and there was Fred Islin, uh, standing outside, and he said, I couldn't help but overhear your conversation uh, you had with Otto Lang. You better come to Aspen. I will invite you for dinner tonight. My wife, Ellie, will cook us a good Viennese dinner and will call Friedel in Aspen, and I want you to come to Aspen. Describe Aspen in that year, 1947. What did it look like then? There were lots of dogs. There were many, many dogs. I couldn't believe it. When I skated from the mountain to the Jerome Hotel where I stayed, uh, I must have had 25 dogs barking behind me. They'd never seen anything like it. But I, I think what happened when the mining boom collapsed, people left, and a lot of them left their dogs behind. They left their houses behind. I mean, you could buy a... Uh, you could buy a house for four or five hundred dollars back taxes on a corner lot. <laughs> Did you see the potential of Aspen at the time, or were you just in love with that valley? You, you know what happened was 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 interesting. It snowed that first night I was here, and in the morning, when I got up and I put the skis in the snow, that snow just flew like down feathers. I said, wow. You know, in Europe, you find snow that uh, uh, that quality up at 3,000 meters elevation. I thought, this is fantastic. It just, just flew and was so easy to ski on. I said, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then the next night, it snowed again, about five, six inches. And then the, ne- and the next day, the sun came out. Same kind of snow again champagne powder as we later called it <laughs> and i thought oh my god you could ski deep snow like nothing you know so it, 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 i thought well, the, the, that climate is is a sensational climate because the, the of the elevation uh, i mean the colorado plateau is about 5000 uh, feet in elevation and then the, you have about a thousand meters or three thousand feet vertical on Aspen Mountain, but but Aspen Mountain is as south as far south as the Strait of Messina between Italy and Sicily. I thought, what? Well, this is amazing, but it's very high, and it so the timberline is very high, much higher than in Europe where it's at eighteen hundred meters. So I thought, wow, this is just an amazing climate. And, and, and also, it's far enough inside the country uh, that the air is very dry. So that helps create this champagne powder also. That this is amazing. And so it looked to me like this is the best place on earth 
for outdoor sports, skiing or climbing, rock climbing or whatever. And I thought, so I thought, wow, this is amazing. But there were hardly any people. So we had hardly any guests. And so that was the next big step to work on that somebody came we could teach to. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Klaus Obermeier. Klaus is describing how he arrived in Aspen in 1947, when it was basically just a ghost town and just getting started in the ski industry. How did you make a living? Uh, well, the good thing was that uh, the ski school paid for room and board, for room and breakfast at the Jerome Hotel, and I shared a room with Pete Seibert, who later built Vale, and we had the worst room. The heat shaft from the coal heating down in the basement went right through that room, and on the coldest night, we had the windows wide open. It was still too hot in there. So, so but it was a room, and uh, uh, when we did get to teach when we did have a class or gave a private lesson we were so nice to those people that <laughs> please come back bring your friends and and fred islin was smart he he went to hollywood and he knew Gary Cooper and Ingrid Bergman all these people that used to go to sun valley and he got them to come to aspen and that gave us the first publicity then uh, because there was naturally no money to advertise Aspen because if we, I, <laughs> when I went somewhere I said my name is Klaus Obermeier said who from Aspen Colorado where from where <laughs> I taught Gary Cooper to ski and we the pictures of it got uh, sent all over the newspaper world you know so it, it was great Ingrid Bergman had this jealous husband that was hiding behind the trees on the mountain to check on us that nothing happened. <laughs> but anyhow, they got us the publicity, and, and that was the first real important step for Aspen to be put on the map. Talk about how you got into the clothing business. The clothing business was kind of a non-existent thing for, for the ski industry then, because there was really no not a big industry. The only thing you could get was a white stack, a nylon shell. It was cold, you know. So going up the uh, single chairlift, that was the world's longest single chairlift, that was a cold ride up there. And, and so, so what happened, we had long city coats. We put those on and then sent them back down on the lift. But But... But we skied it like in four or five minutes. We skied down. And so the next ride up was a cold one because you met your coat coming down halfway up the lift. <laughs> so, so, and on midway, at midway, there was a shed that had a, a wood stove in there, and everybody got off the lift and ran, took the skis off and, and, and warmed up. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher. And my interview today is with Klaus Obermeier. Klaus arrived in Aspen in 1947 and suffered the long, cold chairlift rides with wool clothing. Those long rides gave him an idea 
and started the wheels turning on what he might do to make the ride more comfortable. Yeah, that those cold rides made the wheel turning in my head for warmer clothing, and and that is warm clothing in which you could not just ride up the lift but also ski down. That that wasn't in your way, and so I I I had this down comforter that my mom made me take to America. She, she said, you're, you're going to North America. It must be cold there, or it wouldn't say North America. So you better take that down comfort. And I said, oh, no, I got all these skis and poles and stuff and boots and and and, 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 and clothing. And, and she said, no, you got to take this comfort. So I cut up the comforter and uh, made a down parka out of it. It probably was the first down parka, I don't know. But it looked like Michelin Man, you know, it had arms this thick, but you could ski in it, you know, and it was really warm going up and really warm coming down, and you could ski well in it. And so I had a student in my class who bought it for a lot of money. He said, let me try that, that parka of yours. And he tries it. Oh, this is fantastic! I'll pay. You. He just paid me a lot of money for it. I think it was like three hundred fifty dollars, which was uh, unbelievable because uh, the lift tickets were only four dollars a day then. <laughs> so. Then the wheels yeah, really started turning. Right? Yeah. Then I thought, oh my God, if if somebody is willing to pay that much for comfort and being warm and being and also have something that you can ski in well, uh, I, I have to make more of them. So I went back to Europe the next summer by boat again. That was a long trip. And, um, and I, I saw a friend of mine in Munich who had a bedding factory, and I said, you gotta make me, you got to make me down parkers. I have enough money for about 75 of them. And... Um, uh, he said, uh, no, I make pillows and I make comforters. I don't make parkers. <laughs> I said, come on, let's go to the Hofbräu house, have a few beer and talk about it. And so we had a few beer and that softened him up a little bit. And he said, okay, I'll make you those bloody parkers, but, but you got to bring me the zippers and the knitted uh, sleeve cuffs. He said, yeah, I'll get that. And so he made me 75 and they looked so much better, you know, they had nice arms then and, and they, they didn't look like Michelin men anymore. And when I brought them back, they sold like hotcakes. I mean, they were just gone like this. So that gave me uh, more confidence in, in making more things like also other quilted parkers, first quilted parkers that were long with a belt and and uh, then the first turtlenecks that were warmer and nicer against the skin, all this stuff. It, there, there was just a wide open uh, market for for if you had the right things. So was there any competition then? No, there was no competition. Otherwise, I would have never made it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you miss about your homeland? You know, I I don't really miss a lot. I, I still think we are all passengers on this spaceship Earth that's moving at a tremendous speed. <laughs> There's fortunately enough um, 
kind of what you would call in German Anziehungskraft or uh, um, holding holding uh, you to it, so we don't fly out from it. Uh, so, and so I, I see all the wonderfulness of all the different countries and continents, uh, and uh, I I don't know I don't I, I don't actually miss much. Also today with travel, I go one or once or twice to to Europe and to Orient. It's 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 uh, the world has shrunk. Towards really just a passenger uh, uh, convenience to, to go around the, the the world, you know. Yeah, you're a citizen of the world. Exactly, we all are. You know, we all are, and we need to learn to behave as citizens of the world more so if we can. What does that look like? I, I think to to bring about more understanding and learning about other societies and their differences, to understand the differences and, and maybe understand why they are, and try to create win-win-win situations uh, rather than a win-lose uh, situation. You don't want that because in a win-lose, everybody loses, <laughs> I think. That was Klaus Obermeyer. This December, Klaus will celebrate 97 years as a citizen of this planet. You've been listening to the Immigrant Stories program. For more on Immigrant Stories, please go to our website, kdnk.org. Click on Public Affairs at the top of the page and scroll down. There you'll find our archive. Thanks for listening.